Star Trek has never been just one thing. While we tend to think we know what Star Trek is now, its worldview, themes and approach to storytelling, as well as its backstory and even characterizations, all came together over time. They were shepherded by diverse voices, including those of the fans. The ideas we associate with Trek are flexible, shifting and changing over time, depending on who was writing them, and even who was watching. In this sense, then, Star Trek itself is a mirror universe. Or to put it another way, Star Trek's real mirror universe is our universe. In this podcast, we'll be gazing into the mirror that is Trek, and focusing on how that reflection can shift and change. As Garrick once said, Star Trek, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. One of the major recurring themes of Star Trek, of course, is the idea of utopia, or at least a society that works better than our own. But while the show itself takes this as the jumping off point, it also looks at the concept more critically. Star Trek is littered with utopias gone wrong, supposedly perfect societies that have become oppressive or gone off the rails. Some of them are ruled by computers, others fixate on well-meaning rules taken to horrific extremes. And a lot of them are built on a dark underbelly of exploitation or injustice, the seemingly paradisical world above the clouds made possible by the Morlocks who toil below. Any resemblance to our current society is, of course, purely unintentional. Hello, welcome back to the uh, Star Trek Mirror Universe podcast. I am Adam Prosser, and with me as always is Douglas McDonald-Norman. G'day. And uh, yeah, so we've, uh, after wrapping our little initial run, we decided uh, we'd do the first uh, return. We sort of do these whenever we feel like it. So that's what we're doing right now. We, we, we decided we had kind of a cool topic to talk about, so we're doing an extra one-off episode. Um, the subject today is uh, the way Star Trek is tends to be about social engineering and creating... Um, societies that are crafted along specific lines rather than just organically growing up. Uh, that's a major theme, especially of uh, the original series. Um, and But you do see it in all the other ones as well. Um, yeah, so we are, as, a, as you know, we're the Mirror Universe podcast, so we look at how Star Trek reflects our society, and again, how uh, all the societies that the Star Trek crew encounters are reflections of their society and our society. Uh, so we're very specifically looking at that. Um, so, uh, but yes, it's, it's the idea specifically, which is a very post-World War II idea of a planned society, um, which, which is something that kind of arose especially in the 20th century, and that nowadays almost seems a little quaint. Uh, would you would you say that, uh, Douglas, that we've kind of moved past the idea of social engineering and creating a new, a new society hmm. along deliberate lines? I think that it is potentially an idea which has less of a dominant role in the Western imaginary, or in the American imaginary, if you like, than it did at points in the 20th century. Of course, the idea of a utopian society that stands at the end of history is still something that plays a role in contemporary world politics. One can only look at the society that the Islamic State sought to build in Iraq and Syria, or the society that the Taliban attempted to construct in Afghanistan in the late 1990s, and indeed that they may reconstruct in Afghanistan over the next few weeks. We're recording this on the 14th of August 2021, and hence it's entirely possible that by the time this goes to air, that society will be well in train. But certainly it's shifted from something viewed as a viable prospect for our society, that is from the point of view of the people who produce Star Trek, to something which is viewed very much as being part of the other. Indeed, something that our society is cast in opposition against one certainly still sees ideas of engineering, social engineering, such as the idea, obviously, through social incentives, through the idea that one can control behaviour through nudges. But it's very much at the micro level of changing the individual rather than reshaping society from the top down. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's something that I think, and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to point fingers. 
but, uh, well, yes, I do. What am I saying? Uh, I think that's something that the uh, conservative liber libertarian attitude has really brought in, the idea that uh, if you have a planned society, it means you're indulging in something sinister and, and, and suspicious, and, you know, it's the elites or the, the man is forcing you to do things a certain way. And, I mean, that's even, that's even a big theme in the original Star Trek. Like, it's almost always bad uh, in Star Trek that someone creates a society and tells it, well, here are the rules, you must obey these rules, and we'll create this platonic perfect society, you know, this this whole idea of, I mean, they literally encounter Plato's Republic at one point, in one episode, um, but also the, this whole idea of a society run by a computer, which, which I think, um, I would specifically point it, that as a, uh, the, 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 the image of a society being controlled by a computer, which may or may not be a god, or it might be working behind the scenes to control what everyone does. I think that image is very much an anxiety that blooms out of fear of, I'm going to say specifically communism, uh, and that's why it's such a, a post-World War II fear, uh, because, uh, you know, the, the communist uh, were really, really big on this idea of social engineering and this idea that, you know, oh, we've got to have a five-year plan and we've got to have, you know, we're going to run along this in our society. We, we can see society evolving, so we're going to help that along and we're going to make it follow these tracks. And so the, 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 the computer that controls our society is that turned into kind of a boogeyman. Um, not, yeah, but I mean, a, it's not a horror concept, exactly, but it's generally pretty horrific. Um, <clears throat> of course, and I mean, of course, they're always taking a bit of a cue from uh, from 1984 as well, which is also, you know, uh, at the very least anti-Stalinist. Um, so uh, that's, the, you know, that got, uh, and then, you know, uh, Fahrenheit 451, uh, all these other, all these other uh, sci-fi, dystopian sci-fis where things being controlled leads to bad things happening. And I think that's the anxiety that's generally being shown even as, uh, you know, in the post-war years when Star Trek was maybe the tail end of that, that uh, New Deal era, or the New, new uh, uh, yeah, New Deal era, um, that's where people still kind of went, well, the government will fix it, and people can all pitch in, and at least Americans, they were always of the idea, well, yeah, we can all get together and make this work. I mean, my country, Canada, was generally of that attitude as well. Um, and, and I think in all the major Western countries, there was the idea that, well, the people who lead us are, you know, at, at the very least, they're responsive, and we can plan a society in a good way. But, of course, as the 60s rolled on, people were rebelling against that from the counterculture as well. I think you're absolutely right to situate Star Trek's historical fixation upon the masterpiece society in science fiction tradition. In a large part, it's Star Trek responding to, adapting, in some cases blatantly plagiarizing the science fiction that has gone before. It's placing itself within a broader genre tradition. I actually want to take this moment to plug one of the best science fiction books I've read in the last decade, which was... Francis Spufford's Red Plenty, which is quasi-science fiction, quasi-historical fiction about how if the computer revolution had come to the Soviet Union in the 1950s and 60s, whether that might have provided a means of achieving the utopian dreams of Soviet communism, taking this historical fear of the nexus between uh, advances in computing technology and communist ideology and presenting, if you like, almost a hopeful take on how the two could potentially have intersected to increase human happiness. But the fact that that is a story that remains to be told, that is a subversion which needs to be told, speaks, as you've said, of how intrinsically the two are linked. But when we talk about Star Trek's approach to masterpiece societies, it's not entirely just Star Trek drawing upon a genre tradition, I also think it speaks to something unique in how Star Trek sees the universe. I think we've spoken before that Star Trek is a show deeply rooted upon the idea of historical progress, the idea that society ideally is a question of constant progress and uplift, that we are not content with what we have, but boldly going, advancing, pushing forward new frontiers of freedom. Against this is the idea that a stagnant or unchanging society is in some sense broken or inferior, that it's breaking some sort of 
historical rule whereby things are constantly changing and constantly in progress. This is indeed goes from being subtext to text in the original series, in which an exception, it's an exception to the prime directive that of course you can interfere in another society if that society has become stagnant. So this idea of the masterpiece society, a society that is hidebound either by a single ruler or a single set of rules, is something that is deeply antithetical to how Star Trek thinks history should work, which is obviously an entirely contestable notion. Yeah, um, as I've, I think I mentioned earlier, a low-key one of my favorites is um, uh, Return of the Archons, uh, which is, of course, that's, I think, the first real Star Trek, uh, Our Society is Controlled by a Computer episode, and it's main, and of course that's a very, very heavily uh, dealing with what we're talking about, where there's a society, it has a bunch of weird rules, it is very literally uh, frozen and stagnant, like they're literally frozen in the 19th century, wearing 19th century clothing, because that was what was available in the, 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 the uh, Desilu Studios at the, at the time. Uh, and, uh, but, and of course they have all these weird rules, it's this sort of pacifist society, but then they do the purge every hour, uh, you know, which is very likely the inspiration for that movie series, as I think I mentioned earlier. And um, and then, of course, it all turns out to have been controlled by a giant computer uh, that is, you know, keeping everything uh, in, in sync. Um, and then, uh, so, I mean, that's, that's the... That's the ultimate sort of society will stagnate if we let computers decide what's going to happen because the human spirit is what drives uh, civilizations to the next the next level. Um, and uh, when you get to later on, you get to the Apple, uh, the episode where um, it's it's very blatantly a Garden of Eden parallel, and the computer is God, uh, and that has to be and that and that kind of sinks into. Uh, sinks in with uh, Star Trek's sort of attitude on religion, which is something that comes up repeatedly. Uh, you know, Roddenberry always wanted to do the sort of new atheist thing of being like, well, we shouldn't let God tell us what to do, you know, and uh, with the culmination being uh, Star Trek V, basically. Uh, the, uh, but, but also, you know, repeatedly, I mean, that was the original plan for uh, the motion picture, was that Kirk was going to fight God, uh, which Shatner obviously really liked since he brought it back in Star Trek V. Um, and that, so, so that kind of ties in, you see the overlap of, you know, kicking back against God and kicking back against you know, the idea of a plan for society, um, which even, you know, and, and in the form of a computer, it's it, Star Trek, if you consider it as a whole, especially the original series, they very much are conflating. They're making the argument that the secular idea of societal engineering, even maybe the concept of science to some degree, but dehumanize science. Science as, you know, I know what's best for everyone. I'm going to plan it all out. Um, as, you know, very much in sync with the idea of a, I guess, a demiurge, a bad god uh, that tells people what to do, but, you know, we shouldn't listen to them if, if we were doing the right thing. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know if, I guess the apple basically makes that point, but if you consider that in the context of the other episodes that they've talked about it with, uh, then and, and all the way again up to Star Trek V, uh, then you can see this sort of thesis being slowly spelled out of, uh, of, of, being very critical of the idea of, um, it's almost an anarchist philosophy in a, in a way. I wouldn't, that's not how most people would typify Star Trek, but that particular element is a thread that weaves through it and, and, you know, it comes into this larger, uh, larger storyline because it's reflecting, uh, reflect, it's saying science is a false god, essentially, or social engineering is a false god and you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't let it triumph. I think that's a really interesting analogy to draw. It's taking Arthur Kostler's idea of communism as the god that failed and making it explicitly, that's the god right there. It's a computer shaped like a giant snake and it needs to be destroyed. Um, because Star Trek has met writers who use subjects and they're all cowards. Um, and I think that, that analogy there to anarchism speaks to the fundamental tension within Star Trek and how can you have a show founded upon anti-authoritarian values that is at the same time about military officers um, and that tension between the ideals of the counterculture of the time when it was created and the realities of what's inherent to the genre of military officers going boldly where people already live 
And it's that those contradictions which make Star Trek so consistently interesting to discuss. I think the other obvious significance of it being a commentary upon communism is what happens to the masterpiece society trope as communism ends. Um, Stories of this kind, like Return of the Archons and like The Apple, and even to an extent um, reflected in... uh, Stories like um, the one with the clouds, the cloud the minders. Cloud minders. Yes, <laughs> yes uh, I couldn't remember the episode at first because I'm cool. <laughs> um, this tr- frequently recurring trope in the original series doesn't occur as much in the next generation, and indeed, even though the title "The Masterpiece Society" itself comes from an Next Generation episode, some of that shows more overt travels into this trope, like Justice from the first season, are among the show's most acutely embarrassing hours. Now, I have my own thoughts on this, but I'm interested to hear your view. Why do you think this trope th- shows up more in the original series than it does in later incarnations of the show? Well, I think it's because one of the things Star Trek was nominally trying to do when it first launched in the original show. There's a lot of reasons for it, but I think one of the things is they they were saying, well, we're a real science fiction show. We're going to do, you know, real science fiction stories. They had some uh, new wave science fiction writers on the staff. So they wanted to pull in a lot of the things. They wanted to um, pay homage to a lot of the great science fiction that had existed, especially post-war science fiction. Um, and these, this is one of these themes uh, that that occurs a lot, um, and it's something you can do every week, right? You can, as we've said, you can fly to a planet, you can see the the problem with that planet every week, and then you can and then you can fix it, and by usually messing everything up, and then you can take off. Um, and I think um, that was definitely the spirit of the times, as you mentioned. I think it was, and as I mentioned as well, I think that that was the '60s. Like there was a certain you know, rebellious attitude in the air, regardless of what other ideas, you know, Star Trek wanted to promulgate. They didn't like the idea of, uh, you know, someone who was too, who was, who was too much of an authority figure in the sense of, I'm going to tell, like, even though that's kind of what Kirk does, they didn't want Kirk to be the guy who went around lecturing people. They're oddly okay with that by the next generation era. I'm, I'm, I'm obviously being reductive about what Picard's like, uh, but you could, you know, typify him as the guy who gives people stern lectures, and it's okay because it's Patrick Stewart and we can put up with it. Um, and I think that by that point, the idea of what Star Trek was, as we've mentioned, I think, in other episodes, uh, I think Star Trek didn't know what exactly what it was in the TOS era. It was still figuring out a bit, like, where it stood on things, and, and as we said, the, the wild spectrum of political views... I think by the next generation, it had sort of firmed up as well. It's utopian. It's sort of pseudo-communist in a way, uh, maybe. Um, it's uh, it's got this very it's it's very much in yes, this is an idealistic society, and it's run a certain way. And Roddenberry was a little further down the path of being yes, it's a very authoritative society. It's 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 run according to certain rules and so on. And he always liked the military, and he he loved the idea of a militaristic. Uh, control. But I think it's also the fact that, I, I mean, the obvious thing, of course, with the Cold War ending, um, and, you know, that that's something that uh, America could hold up during the Cold War and say, well, we're the rugged individualists, we're the cowboys. After the end of the Cold War, it was like, well, now, we're, heck, we're in charge. We're the only ones left, right? We're the superpower. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that's uh, one of the factors that took into, uh, took into account. And I think it's very significant in... Um, I, of course, I want to get your view on that as well, but um, it is very significant that Deep Space Nine, arguably, one of its biggest central premises is looking at the fall of um, the fall of a, not necessarily a Star Trek style masterpiece society, but certainly a very authoritarian society. And suddenly, there's a power vacuum, which was obviously initially meant to be uh, parallel with the fall of the Soviet Union and a Soviet satellite state in Bajor. Um, so that's more explicitly tied to modern politics. But you can see that same thing because the Cardassians are kind of like a warped, evil version of that. Like we're, because they are so authoritarian and they are so interested in telling everyone what to do and being authoritarian. 
I think that's exactly right. And I th- I hadn't thought of the Cardassians as a masterpiece society until you wrote it in the show, show notes. But it actually works really perfectly in that way. There's an element of satire to it, like the idea that Cardassian mystery novels aren't about working out who's guilty. It's that everyone's guilty and it's working out precisely how guilty everyone is. Or the idea that Cardassian literature consists of uh, the repetitive epic seven generations of a family lived in selfless service to the state, or the idea that Cardassian trials aren't about proving a person innocent, they are about proving that they're guilty in a way that ultimately satisfies people that justice has been done. But all of those satirical ideas would fit perfectly into any of the authoritarian societies depicted on the original series. They simply appear... They, 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 they're simply not painted in the, as it were, pastels or primary colours that an original series society might be, but are spooled out at greater length over a longest period of time. I think you're absolutely right to place this in terms of the decline of the influence of traditional science fiction, and indeed the loss of that initial pipeline whereby literary science fiction authors like Theodore Spurgeon or Harlan Ellison wrote directly for the original series, or in Harlan Ellison's case, wrote for the original series and then spent 50 years complaining that they hadn't written what they wanted to. Now, that having been said, I actually, in some respects, as you've said, that is about Star Trek getting more of a sense of itself, that it's not merely a vehicle by which literary science fiction stories can be told, but a universe of its own with its own unique history and traditions and ideology and types of Star Trek stories. In some respects, that's a good thing. A lot of what we love about Star Trek is that it is an extremely unusual and unique media property. There are stories you can tell with Star Trek that you can't tell with other vehicles because you can draw upon the history of that universe. But it's actually, as I think I've said before, something ultimately to be mourned, that ultimately Star Trek cuts itself off from the broader media ecosystem. And rather than telling science fiction stories in a Star Trek way, or war stories in a Star Trek way, or westerns in a Star Trek way, it ultimately just becomes a show that tells Star Trek stories in a Star Trek way. And so the decline of masterpiece societies is in part the tributaries that feed into Star Trek drying up. Um, The other interesting thing about masterpiece societies in the Burman area is that in some respects you see a shift away from using them to comment upon communism towards being a way to comment upon the shortcomings of contemporary society, rather than being directed against the imagined other, being a little bit more searching and interior. And in this respect, again, this is not something I'd thought about deeply until Zach Handlin, who uh, reviews Star Trek for his Patreon and reviewed Star Trek for many years for the AV Club, posted his review of 30 Days, the Voyager one with the water world, in which a carefully organised society functioning on rigid rules is unable to face up to, as it were, inconvenient truths about itself and its relationship with the environment. A lot of Star Trek stories involving dystopian societies so hidebound by rules that they're unable to face up to the truth about themselves ultimately become stories not so much about the Soviet Union but about contemporary America's relationship with science. Another example from Voyager would be Distant Origin, the one with the dinosaurs. Hmm. And so it's a really interesting attempt to repurpose the trope to suit the needs of contemporary America, which I wish we'd seen more of. Yeah, um, actually, that's uh, one of the interesting things, just to go back a little to the, the what you were saying, the Berman era. Um, I think in some ways it's because, well, as Star Trek, as Next Generation specifically, got a little more grounded. The first couple of years of Next Generation were, as we said, there was a huge revolving door. I think, I can't remember if I mentioned this, but there's an episode, uh, The Royale, where they go into this uh, this uh, hotel and they get there through this revolving door and they're stuck in this, you know, st- very stilted story that they can't escape from. And I, I've always felt like that was someone writing waggishly about what was going on in Next Generation at that time, because that was the second season. It was literally a revolving door of writers and they were stuck on very tropey stories that they felt like they couldn't escape from. And I think they did ultimately get away from that in the third season. I think that... Um, the uh, the third season um, 
you know, they get a little more grounded. The characters start to feel a little more real. It starts to be a little more relatable, and we all start to love these characters. And and uh, and and this and the 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 they they start to engage in a way that's maybe a little more relatable rather than the big ideas. So the first two years of Next Generation are definitely in the mode of the original series in a way that after the third season it isn't and i think that one of the things that, and and in general it's an improvement i think i i'm not going to go while i will defend the first season of next generation surprisingly to a surprising degree uh i i will say that yeah generally it, it did improve by doing this and becoming and it became its own thing by doing this as well but one thing that did get left behind is that they weren't quite as attached to the big idea anymore um it's not that they didn't do big ideas still, but the whole idea of, you know, I I want to say, again, I associate it with the 60s, that sole sort of um, uh, egomaniacal idea of, I God, I'm going to tell everything there is about human nature and society and God and the universe in a 45-minute TV episode. Uh, you, you see that kind of <laughs> joyous hubris in the... Uh, in the original series all the time. And I feel like you don't see that as much as Next Generation goes on. They start to go, okay, well, that that might be a little much. And they're not wrong, <laughs> but it does mean that you're not going to get that whole sort of, we're going to create a society so that I can point to it and say, this is what's wrong with society, damn it. Uh, <laughs> they, they move away from that impulse. I think that's a big part of the reason why they do that. And in as much as they do embrace it, it becomes, as you say, it becomes very deconstructive. And it becomes um, uh, something like, again, Deep Space Nine, which in many ways was telling an entire start. Like, a lot of aspects of Deep Space Nine in its entire seven-year arc was the thing Kirk would do in one episode. And, in fact, the Cardassians, again, um, they are, too. They are also a stagnant society that can't change, that can't uh, move with the times. And in doing so, by the end of Deep Space Nine... Uh, they become the you know the 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 instead of bending in the wood in the wind like a grass they uh, they snap like the oak tree that got that couldn't stand it was the wind got too strong and that's what happens it it uh, they they they're they're destroyed by their stagnant uh, militancy in their belief that their society is right so it is the very much the kind of thing that happens in any given Star Trek episode but it happened over seven seasons and it was this large large arc that affects the entire galaxy and everything. Um, so you can see that. So it's still there in the Berman area. It's just maybe looked at a little more uh, uh, holistically. It's, it's the, we zoom in really tight on it and, and spell it out over a long period of time. Uh, the other thing that I, I actually, I would say you, you start to notice in the Berman era is that you don't see in the, the TOS era. The TOS era is, despite all the discovery that's going on, there's not as much, and they and and they talk about Orion pirates and uh, slave girls and all that kind of stuff, uh, but you don't get the sense of it as. It, it, I know this is funny because it it did westerns a lot in the original series, but it doesn't feel as much like the Wild West. Oddly enough, the actual galaxy of Star Trek uh, does not have that sort of banditry and that 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 sort of oh yeah, there's there's wild gangs roaming around the galaxy. There's dangerous. Uh, scavengers and stuff if you meet someone who's dangerous in the, the the original series they're usually at the head of a government of you know a, a hostile government it's all a very cold war universe uh, uh whereas next generation and then going into these nine voyager you're finally starting to see this idea of well there are societies that have started to suffer breakdowns. There are societies that are starting to fall apart, the opposite of the Masterpiece Society. Uh, the Kazon are the big ones uh, in, in, uh, in um, uh, Voyager, of course. But there's, you know, there are a number of stories in Next Generation of, like, roaming uh, gangs. Uh, you know, uh, Tasha Yar's whole backstory is about that she grew up in a, in a, failed, uh, a failed planet that, that, whose society fell. And that was a Federation colony, which is pretty crazy that they put that in there and they did so little with it. It's like, wait a minute, the Federation has failed colonies. That raises a ton of issues about the Federation that I wish we could have gotten into a bit more. Um, and, even, and even now with the modern shows, when you get to like Picard and Discovery, and there's the sense that the Federation itself might have um, become a bit of this, uh, you know, not it, it didn't crash as hard as uh, 
as some of the other societies we've seen. It's not an absolute apocalyptic uh, dystopia, but certainly it does feel like maybe in Picard's time it was starting to hit its limits uh, and, and stagnate a bit, and that's what we're now seeing the fallout from, potentially. I think that point about the Federation, the idea that potentially if you like, the next generation was the crest of the wave and that what we've seen as depicted in Star Trek of the three decades of Federation after that is the Federation's in internal weaknesses coming to show. I think it is at once a really, really interesting topic and something that I think Star Trek needs to be enormously careful in handling. I mean, Deep Space Nine some of its greatest hours came from showing how, for example, the uh, smugness of the Federation, the Federation's growing detachment between centre and periphery, the Federation's belief in its own rectitude and deafness to voices suggesting that its policies had catastrophic human effects on those on the frontier. Some of its greatest hours came out of exploring those issues. Picard, and to a lesser extent this most recent season of Discovery, have tried to play with some of those themes to varying degrees of success. I think there's really interesting things to be said in that regard. That said, I, as we've discussed before, I try really, really hard not to be a purist about Star Trek. And I think that those fans who say Star Trek definitely is this or isn't that, or that there are certain things which Star Trek must inherently have in order to be Star Trek, I worry that that impulse taken too far ultimately becomes not a spine and skeletal structure for the show, but ultimately a straitjacket that may strangle it. That said, a Star Trek in which there's that loses this idea of historical progress altogether, that doesn't view it as a flawed ideal, that doesn't view it as worthy of critique, but rejects it as ultimately a dead end. I worry that that is potentially moving away from something inherent to the show. If the Federation, this ideal of creating a society beyond materiality, beyond materialism, beyond hate, beyond internal intolerance, if that ideal is depicted by its by Star Trek as being in some sense rotten at its core, I think there are interesting ideas to be played with that, but I think the idea of a Star Trek that ultimately does merely view the Federation as part of a process of rise and fall, or that ideal is not worth striving for, I worry that we lose something inherent to the show in doing that. Because, I mean, but ultimately, as you've said... The Federation that we see in Next Gen may describe itself as a utopia, but it's not an entirely utopian place to live. Colonies can be founded and they fail. Um, its best intentions may not be matched by a proper understanding or a proper ability to carry out those intentions, particularly um, as we move into Deep Space Nine. And so that ultimately asks the question, how is the Federation different from these failed utopias that we see so often in Star Trek? What is it that Star Trek regards as inherent to the Federation that makes them different from these other societies? Is it internal liberty, or is there something about the Federation that is in some sense different from other societies founded upon utopian ideals? Um, yeah, I, I think that... Um... I think that you actually kind of said it earlier. Um, the fact that they do place, place such a value on discovering and changing and learning, and at least on paper, uh, bringing in new values, adding new members to the Federation, uh, cultural contact with other civilizations. I think that is probably, if you ask, you know, Roddenberry or some of the the real architects of Star Trek, you know, why is this such a, you know, why is this a, a uh, a good society as opposed to all the other societies that encounters that are seeming utopias that fail. Uh, I think that that's probably one of the things they would point to, if not the main thing. Uh, the fact that, you know, it's about discovery and growing and expanding and changing. Um, that said, um, there's also an aspect of it that um, 
doesn't usually get brought to, to people's attention as much, um, but it does tie into what we're talking about here um, because we're talking about societies that are sort of constructed, right? That are, that are put on rails, right? And, and sent on. And, and for all that we've, you know, spent all these 50 years among Star Trek universe characters, um, we, we, we haven't always had a great sense of what life is like outside of Starfleet, as, as I believe you, you brought up in an, in one episode. And, um, it's, you don't get a sense to what degree life for regular Federation citizens is. It certainly seems very um, free and open and liber, uh, liber not libertine, but uh, you know, uh, it, you it does really seem like you have a lot of options if you're a, if you're a member of the Federation. Um, you never hear about the Federation declaring, okay, well we're going to uh, we're going to uh, step up. Uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna establish this colony, and it's gonna work on this, this, and that, and the other. It's only real overall uh, point seems to be to uh, again explore science, uh, colonize new worlds, and uh, and go forth and multiply, basically. Um, and in fact, every Star Trek ship, every every Starfleet ship, uh, seems to have a real. Um, it, it seems to be, you know, autonomous little village unto itself. Um, we've said this before, like, Kirk and Picard don't really usually have to do a lot of answering to uh, Starfleet, uh, you know, the, the higher-ups in Starfleet. They're there, and occasionally they'll get chewed out. Uh, but, you know, there's it's very much like, well, I'm at the far end of the galaxy, and I'm going to make a decision about this, this uh, civilization that, you know, no one can bother me with because I'm the captain, I have this power. Uh, and there are all these autonomous little uh, ships operating that apparently can can do that. Um, it, it's also true that uh, most of the colonies seem to be free to do what they wilt, as we say. Uh, Turkana Four, which is the uh, the uh, the um, the Tasha Yar's homeworld, was allowed to just collapse, and the Federation didn't come storming in with like rescue aid. Again, it's very strange that that place exists in many ways. Um, because there, you know, there, there's, there was no, it just withdrew from the Federation somehow. Uh, but of course we do see this with the McKee as well. They, they do that as well. Um, so mm. clearly there's actually quite a lot of freedom among Federation citizens to kind of say, yeah, we're just going to do what we want. Uh, they're not being engineered and they're not being compelled in, in most ways for, by the higher ups. Um, I would argue, and, and, and for all that, uh, we're now seeing, as you say, the crest of the wave, in Picard, and then you know we see the the uh, the very uh, shattered Federation in Discovery in the current season. Um, for all that we see that, and it's sort of and it, it's a dramatic device to put the Federation back on its heels. But for all that we see that, it is also true that you know you can see that maybe like things aren't that bad. It's not it's not Mad Max in space uh, by the time of Discovery. Things, the Federation still exists. It's still mm. trying to do its best. It still is out there. And there's, there's an argument you could be made, that could be made that uh, it's in the process of changing and evolving into something better. And we're just kind of catching it at a bit of a low point here uh, a thousand years on. Uh, I think that's uh, probably what they're going for on Discovery as well. And I think that be, given that, you know, societies don't remain static, and that is a Star Trek theme, um, I think something like that had to happen to just show that it was evolving and, and, and taking shape. And there's the possibility that, well, now maybe we can find the next thing in, uh, in Star Trek. Maybe the Federation is, you know, going to reach a new height now. Like, it, it's, it's figuring out what it's going to do. It's exploring new options. It talked to the or Orions, the Emerald Chain, about being something new. They decided not to do it, but it's sort of, well, options are on the table now. We're going to look at what else we can do and what else we can be. And I think that's sort of what they're working through. And that's an interesting, you know, from a narrative perspective, certainly, that's, that's very interesting. But it's taken a big step away, again, from being anything like an organized, orderly society in, in that regard. I think that's all really interesting, and I think I agree with just about all of it. In particular, I think that take on season three of Discovery, that they've taken an interesting tack by not making it Mad Max, but making it another stage in the Federation's evolution, is one of the most interesting things I've heard about an interesting if flawed season and actually makes the whole 
endeavor considerably worthier and more interesting than I thought when I was watching it. I think that point that the Federation doesn't impose a particular idea of how you ought to live beyond very, very broad guidelines is at once something that is arguably in tension with arguably in tension with some of the more utopian or communistic aspects of the Federation. And yet at the same time, I think you're absolutely right. That's key to what makes the Federation different. And this is really epitomized by obviously the famous speech that Eddington gives in For the Cause, where he says that the Federation are like the Borg. You assimilate people and you don't even know it. And it stings, and obviously it stings Cisco quite a lot, but it's also worth bearing in mind that that's not actually the Federation that we see on screen. When you're assimilated into the Borg, it doesn't bring out anything about where you, what you were before. You're entirely smothered by the new identity. But when Nog becomes a Starfleet officer, as we've talked about before, it doesn't mean that his Ferengi identity is erased. It gives him new opportunities and new avenues through which to express that identity. He's a more successful Ferengi in some ways, in terms of having an opportunity to use his entrepreneurial skills in a new arena, than he would have been in a Ferengi society surrounded by people who are more cutthroat than he is. The Federation doesn't make him less of a Ferengi, it gives him another way of expressing that. And so ultimately for the Federation to resist the siren song of the failed masterpiece society, it's about providing those opportunities for individual fulfillment rather than imposing that single straitjacket. And if we've used Discovery Season 3 as part of that continuum, it's ultimately the Federation practicing what it preaches by changing and evolving to suit new times. Um, the, the other point that emerges from that um, and this is something of a jarring segue, but I'm, it's something that's consistently fascinating to me, is how Star Trek's stance on genetic engineering fits into this. As we've discussed, I think, in previous episodes, Star Trek is a franchise that is devoted to the idea of scientific progress, the idea of pushing back frontiers and resisting taboos, except this one, this being the absolute unbreakable rule Thou shalt not genetically engineer. Thou shalt not be Karnoonian Singh or there's hell to pay. But viewed in this context, in terms of what makes the Federation different, it takes on a different resonance. The, the Federation is built upon the idea of rejecting a single totalizing impulse of how to be, that the idea of one path towards happiness or one mode of expression, then genetic engineering, which is based upon the idea of that some people are just better than others and in that sense inherently desirable seems counter to that impulse. It's an inherently illiberal instinct, the idea that people need to be made better. And so Star Trek's resistance to genetic engineering in that way becomes part of what sets the Federation apart from the masterpiece societies. Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I don't... Yeah, and, and, and I mean, you say it's like... Um, oh, they, they're, they're towards, you know, evolving and growing towards something change, except in the way of genetic engineering. I don't think that there's a con, like that's, I don't think that's inherently uh, contradictory. Uh, I think, I think that it's, you know, the, the idea of genetically engineering someone to make them better uh, opens so many doors that I think have always been obvious. Like when you start saying, well, we'll just genetically, physically make them better. Um, that's, I don't think you have to be, you know, uh, 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 a, a beard stroking sage to go, well, that sure, uh, <laughs> that sure creates a, a lot of potential problems and that that's not necessarily, uh, the direction that you want a, you know, a, an idealistic society to go down. Like it, it creates too many problems, uh, for the idea of the Federation as a utopia or even just a, a good guy society if you say, well, they've got all this genetic engineering. I mean, you do clearly see, I mean, they clearly have very advanced medical technology, um, but the idea of just, like, using it, 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 you're allowed to use all kinds of, you know, it's even if it's never called genetic engineering, they are definitely uh, allowed to use uh, medical stuff to, uh, to uh, 
I guess in, improve in the sense of getting you up to fighting speed, uh, you know, your, your, uh, your genetic uh, abilities. And they do some pretty crazy over-the-top stuff, in fact, in that regard. But in the, in the sense of the larger philosophy of, well, I'm going to improve you physically by tweaking your genes, of course, that's viewed with horror, um, which is partly a narrative thing, it should be pointed out. Like, it's simply that they, they did uh, Space Seed, and then they said, you know, well, okay, logically, the outcome of that would be that the Federation would be a society that said, oh, we're not doing that again. Um, like, so it's, it's, uh, it's not even as much a commentary from the writers as just a narrative logic, I think, um, in some ways. But it is true that, of course, Space Seed, as well, very much gets into the Masterpiece Society. It very much gets into the idea of, well, I've got the best idea for how to run my society. I'm going to make it work. And I mean, Space Seed is very mm. generous towards Khan. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think you could argue that he was never going to succeed in that regard, unless he somehow came to the realization that he wasn't the end-all and be-all. And, you know, you, you don't want to say, oh, he could never succeed, but the ideas that were powering him to create his ideal society and to conquer Earth when you go back, you know, 200 years or whatever, are, um, are pretty obviously, as you say, illiberal and bad and, and don't really have a good place within the Star Trek universe. Um, so it, it does make a certain amount of sense that they wouldn't bring that in. And, I mean, again, it, you can argue that again, maybe Earth, at least, kind of went through its uh, failed utopia phase in Star Trek uh, context already, like, 200 years before the show starts. Uh, they had, uh, you know, genetic supermen as our, our superiors uh, ruling the world. That didn't work out. It went horribly wrong. And, and, it, and, and like all these other Star Trek utopias, it did fall into uh, anarchy. Like, uh, whether some alien Kirk came down and said... You know, and did something to mess around with Khan's uh, society uh, or not. Um, it really just seems like to have been the fallout from a war or whatever. Um, the end result was nevertheless that um, we, you know, we tried this sort of ideal perfect society, 1984-like society. One has to imagine. We don't know exactly what it was like under Khan. But that's the general concept that it would be very tyrannical. And uh, it fell apart. Society, as we've seen in Star Trek, is a... You know, for a while it went through, there was a, literally a nuclear war, there was all kinds of other stuff, and then we came out of that. So it's, that actually shows you how Star Trek, I think, sees the, um, the concept of chaos being brought in to bear on something that's too stable as a very good thing. And in fact, so that, that you know, you can apply that to the genetic engineering as well, too. You could say, like, well, if you genetic engineer something, you're not going to have those variants, those wild mutations that could thrust things forward into a new, into a new, uh, into a new situation. So I think that, again, I think that's actually very consistent uh, of them to be talking in that term. I never thought that I'd think of Star Trek in the same terms as Babylon 5's Shadows. But do you actually make a pretty convincing case for it, the idea of chaos as the driving vehicle of history in a society that rejects chaos in favour of unending order as ultimately stagnant and doomed to fail? Um, that consistent emphasis upon the human factor, the unpredictable, the, um, the wild as a driving motive force in human happiness. Um, obviously... It's And it, ultimately, it may be difficult to totalize the Federation in one way or another as a society devoted towards self-expression or a society devoted towards community, when ultimately what makes the Federation work and what drives Star Trek vision of the future is the idea of a society that maintains a balance between those elements. Uh, and that when the Federation falls one way or the other, it is ultimately about an imbalance between the two rather than one being inherently superior to the other. I don't have an enormous amount more to add on this topic. I think it's been really interesting. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think you that's you've you've summed up what I've been trying to say really well when you said that. So I think uh, I think this is a perfect place to put a point pin in it. But you're right. It's that I don't think it's necessarily against the idea of pushing towards progress and orderly society, and it's not against the idea of chaos and just sort of blowing things up once in a while just to see where the, the pieces land. I think that's actually exactly right. I think Star Trek thinks that uh, the balance is, and I, and I think this is pretty logical for history. I think, uh, I think 
the general theme of the show would be, yeah, you have, you have to have both. You have to have the urge to progress, the urge to make things work the way they should work, and the urge to sort of uh, plan for a grand future, but you should also have the ability to just throw a bomb in there once in a while and, uh, and shake things up, because otherwise, you, you know, you, uh, you get too stagnant. I think that, that's, that's a perfect, that's a perfect uh, summary of, I think, where Star Trek's overall philosophy stands on the Masterpiece Society. So, well done. <laughs> okay, so just a reminder to everyone, so again, thank you for joining us for this special episode uh, of Star Trek uh, Mirror Universe podcast. Um, again, we'll come back at some point when we have something else interesting to talk about. Uh, once again, if you want to uh, check us out, I have my other podcast, What Mad Universe, at uh, uh, neversleepsnetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe. Um, uh, talk about uh, literary sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, and all the tropes that have affected our uh, our world, um, our culture. And uh, you can go to my Patreon. You can go to I'm at Patreon.com/slash/PhantasmicTales with a P-H-A-N-T, Phantasmic Tales. Um, uh, or just look for Adam Prosser on Patreon. You can see all the various things I do, including this podcast, but also comics and, uh, and other things. Um, oh, and uh, I may as well hype it <laughs> for all the good it's do doing. Uh, I am now working on uh, at, a, at a site called Heroes Live, uh, which is a, a streaming site that offers uh, both video and uh, comics content. And uh, so you, if you go to heroeslive.vhx.tv, uh, you can see... Um, uh, some of the stuff we have up there. You can subscribe and get a whole lot of indie comics and indie, indie short films and indie films and indie series. Uh, it's kind of a cool uh, bargain, and I'm, I'm just starting out, but I'm hoping to make it into a really cool uh, website, for comics at least, and uh, you'll be able to see a lot of my pals there. Um, my webcomic Strange Romance is up there, some of my own comics are up there, but there's a lot of other talented creators. Um, so keep an eye on that. That's going to get pretty cool, I think, in the next... Uh, in the over the uh, over the next few months as we get to the end of 2021, and uh, so uh, that's it for me. I, I did you have anything to plug, Douglas? I probably not, right? <laughs> I do not. I strongly endorse all of Adam's stuff, um, <laughs> but no, I have been. Um, uh, I'm. I, I I have been trying to cut down on my social media presence in the last. Um, nine months or so. Well, with you know the the bleakness, and so um, I, I, I've been working very, very hard at my day job, which I'm professionally incapable of plugging. So I would strongly encourage you, if you feel the desire to follow up on this podcast, to go with Adam's stuff. <laughs> yes, but nevertheless, Douglas does very good work in that thing that we can't talk about him doing. But uh, yes, uh, <laughs> he is. <laughs> Just know that he's out there helping to build the Masterpiece Society in his own way. How about that? Let's let's say that. Um, anyway, so uh, <laughs> goodbye to all. <laughs> Thank you, Trekkies. We'll see you again uh, real soon. Follow me on uh, Twitter at Prankster36 and uh, uh, Douglas at InnocuousAlt. Uh, and uh, for uh, <laughs> for updates on when we may be returning or if we're going to do anything else in the near future. And uh, until then, uh, live long and prosper. And we'll see you on the other side of the Masterpiece Society.